so at this point in time, we are in a series where we're highlighting the mission of the church. Now, again, every church is going to restate the wording of this and how it would uh, come out and how they proclaim it. But for us, what we've done is like, we just take the very essence of the commission of Jesus when he says, go into all the world making disciples uh, of him and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then teaching all that he has taught us. That's found in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And we take that as that's our mission of the church. But what it means then to be a disciple of Jesus, where we look like him, where we behave like him, we think like him, uh, that we believe we've boiled that down into four simple statements. That Jesus loved God, he loved people, he lived and proclaimed truth, and he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. And uh, we get to proclaim him. And so those are the four statements that we believe defines what a disciple looks like. And so we've been talking through what it means to love God, love people, and proclaim or, and live truth and proclaim Jesus, which is today. Now, as part of that journey, we as a church create a pattern uh, in that in that year of how what does it look like to continue to foster a love for God. Now, in January of each year, the natural tendency in our culture is to look forward. Okay, what kind of changes am I going to make to go forward in this new year? Well, it's also appropriate, but maybe not so much practice, to look back and say thank you. Uh, To look back at the previous year and acknowledge God's hand in your life, acknowledge the things he has done. And so about eight or nine years ago, we began a pattern of doing a a gathering on a Sunday afternoon uh, in this time of year where we then celebrate God. And so it's all about what he's done. So we look past. Yes, we're going to look forward, but we can need to look past to the past and say, thank you, God. We celebrate your work. And so next Sunday evening, uh, we will have a gathering. It's actually just, just before the dinner time hour. And we'll encourage you to bring your favorite hors d'oeuvre or appetizer to bring to your table. The tables will be set up in here. And, uh, and, and so you, we'll all get to participate in eating, whatever, whoever's at your table. And if you're like uh, our friend Tyler Morris, you can just work the various tables in the room. And find out which appetizers you really like. And then if you find one you really, really like, park there. Uh, and so that'll be next uh, Sunday afternoon. There are no football games at that time unless you like the pro, all-pro game uh, that will be in the NFL. It's just kind of lame in my opinion. Um, but anyway, that'll be next uh, Sunday afternoon going into evening. And the way we're going to celebrate God that night is going to be a little different. Uh, About 12 to 13 years ago, there was a movement of a unique way to share a testimony. And that unique way was through what we call cardboard testimony. Now, when we gather, I mean, there's hundreds of people here in this room. To know what each other's story is, is very difficult to do. And it's also difficult to like be able to to receive as much of that as possible for the sake of of celebrating God, but also bringing encouragement to each other. Well, this idea of a cardboard testimony uh, began to pop up throughout the country. And what happens is, is that during a time of worship, uh, we'll come to that point in, in, in our worship time and celebrating him where it'll just be music playing, and then we'll invite people to come up with their cardboard testimonies. They won't say a word, but yet... They're going to communicate much. So it will look like this. As music sharing, people one by one will come across the stage and maybe hold something like this. And as and again, music's playing. And then flip it and be able to show what's happened. Now, LEFC did this back in 2010. I wasn't here at that time, but I've seen parts of the video, and it's very powerful. Now, I had never participated personally in a cardboard testimony opportunity, but somebody forwarded me uh, several years ago, hey, have you seen this? There's somebody in this cardboard testimony thing that you know. 
And it was powerful because it was somebody I had invested in, but I never knew whatever happened to them. Did they ever turn to Christ? Because we, you know, so much is sown, and you, maybe you can relate, where you've prayed for somebody, you've invested in them, but they never made that decision as far as you knew. And that was one of those stories. And so this person forwarded the, the videos, like, you've got to see this. This person's in there that you'd invested in. And, and in there to be able to see the cardboard testimony and to see the rest of what was done in their life was such an encouragement to me. And so next week, we're going to invite you to bring cardboard testimonies where you can share it. And that will encourage one another. But think about it. What if, like in this case, I held up anxiety and worry and then, and then I show that hope and peace that is there. What if you came that night and that's your story, but yet it hasn't got, gotten to that hope and peace yet? Well, now you know somebody you can go and talk with. So tell me more about that story. I struggle with anxiety and worry. How did you get to a place of hope and peace? And so it's an opportunity to create bridges to further conversation, but to celebrate what God has done and can do in somebody's life. So again, that's next Sunday evening, and I would invite you guys to come uh, and enjoy the food and also the fellowship, but also it's an opportunity to look back so we can say, thank you, God. In spirit of that, today we're looking at that part where we're going to proclaim Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4, uh, in John chapter 4, there's a story there that's pretty powerful. And so if you can turn there, you can also use the Bible app, the YouVersion Bible app, and go to the events tab, and you'll find uh, LEFC there. And you tap on that, you'll get the scriptures we're using this morning. Because we're going to be using John chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll end in Romans chapter 10. So while you're turning to John chapter 4, I want to tell a story that quite frankly, was, was very impacting to me. And I believe it was impacting to an entire region uh, of, at, at a particular time about 13, 14 years ago. Around the year of 2008, I had taken a large group of students to a place called Harvey Cedars Bible Conference. That's where we take teenagers today from LAFC to do beach camp. It's on Long Beach Island, and there's several youth groups that will gather together. It's about 400 teenagers and leaders there, and, uh, and we're sharing the gospel. We have a speaker. We have worship by music, and then there's a lot of youth group time. There's a lot of uh, interaction in small groups, and then, yes, we get to go to the beach and enjoy God's creation. This one particular week, I've been taking students there from the summer of 96 up until 2011, and in 2008, I believe it was around that year, there was a profound working of God in our group that was so incredible that it was tangible, even though you can't see the Spirit of God, but you know, it's like what Jesus says, you may not be able to see the Spirit of God, but you know it's there. You can see the evidence of it, just like you cannot see the wind, but you can see the effects of it. And you could see that was going on in our group. And, and so just in a spontaneous action, and when it was just our youth group gathered in the, in the chapel there, and there's again about 140 of us between students and leaders, uh, all senior high age. And, and I just said, you know, I am seeing God at work. I can sense he is working even now. And I just want to ask this question of you. If you've given your life to Jesus this week, would you stand up on your chair More than a dozen students got up on their chair and said they had given their lives to Christ. But one student in particular floored me because it hadn't been that long before that that she had told her parents that she hated God. She lived in my neighborhood. Her family had started coming to our church. But she had reason to have this kind of hard spirit and nobody had known that she had given her life to, that, to Christ that week. In fact, she came to that week begrudgingly. Her parents and many others really emphasized, you need to go. Too often we don't nudge our children to go something, to something that they need to go to. And they balk at it. So this is an encouragement to parents and friends. If you know somebody that needs to go, encourage them to go to these camps and retreats. This young woman 
stood up on her chair and all of us were shocked. She had had that countenance up to that point of like, prove it. I dare you. And man, did God not break through to our group when they saw her standing and tears were flowing over her face. Then I just said after that, I was like, hey, if God did something in your life this week where you realize you haven't been all in and you're gonna say, you know what, from here on, I'm gonna live for him, would you stand up now on your chair? And, and just an incredible movement of, of students getting up on their chair and standing. And what, led ne- what happened next was not by my leadership. They began to get in huddles of prayer. And I was hearing those prayers as I was walking around the room, praying as God led me to pray over different students. I was hearing their prayers and it was like, God, help us to be courageous. God, help us to be bold. God, help my friend named blah, blah, blah. And, and it was just all this, and it was all about proclaiming Jesus to other people either for courage for it or for movement in somebody's heart to that end. What happened over the next few years was truly nothing but a miracle. It spurred in the hearts of those students that they were no longer going to be silent when given opportunity to speak. And they began to share the gospel with their peers. And about a year and a half after that camp, Somebody shared their, their story with a young man at their high school who happened to be a captain for the football team. He gave his life to Christ. He had no idea this moment that had happened a year and a half before, but it was the ripple effects, the ongoing ripple effects of that work that led to somebody else who led to share Christ, who led to somebody else who shared Christ, who shared Christ with him. He gave his life to Christ and then came to church. And then, as a result of that, he talked to the coach and said, can I lead a time of prayer uh, with our football team? He showed courage. Guys began to huddle around him where the majority of the football team would start with prayer with him before they would hit the field. That young man went on to law school Went to law school, playing football in college, and got injured, and, but still pursued that degree. But as time went on, he stayed involved with West Shore Free Church, where I had served. Now I'm at LEFC, but I hear that as they needed extra help, they kept hiring from interim roles while he was in this career in a secular workforce. Eventually, they realized the anointing that God is on you. And they called him to be the youth pastor and he left his career that was certainly going to earn him more than what he was going to earn by being a youth pastor. But he found joy in it. And he today is leading that youth ministry. I'm telling you that as a first person observer of this. When God changes a person's life, He gives the Holy Spirit. And then when he gives you the Holy Spirit, he has given you all that you need to be able to be a proclaimer for him. And too often we withhold because we're fearful of either rejection or fearful we won't do it well or fearful that it will change the relationship. We're fearful that we wouldn't know what to say if they asked more. And then we withhold the beauty of what God can do through a life that has been changed. This story we're going to look at in John chapter 4. God used the story of a woman whose reputation was not great by any sense of the word. In fact, it was a horrific reputation. She had no formal training, but she certainly knew what it meant to be thrown into the, the, the limelight and said, shame, sinner, failure, unclean. She knew all of that. But then she goes out 
at a time when it was not likely for a woman to go to a well to get water so that she wouldn't have to encounter anybody. Because it was dangerous for her to be around others because it would only hurt her further. Again, much of this earned by her own actions. But this particular well, which was in Samaria, was known as Jacob's well. And Jesus was, happened to be traveling through that area. He was exhausted from his ministry. He sent the disciples into the town to get food, but he decided to get water. So you have a Jewish man, which typically by tradition and cultural etiquette would not talk to a woman, whether Jewish or Samaritan or Gentile. But also on top of that, Jews and Samaritans did not talk with each other because they, dis, they disliked each other. So this encounter happens. At first, this woman is asked to draw water. And then Jesus then says, well, you know what? I can give you water that you will never thirst again. And that piqued her interest. Well, I would like water where I would never thirst again. Because again, then she wouldn't have to go to the well and be subjected to possible ridicule. The dialogue goes back and forth. She asks him a question. He asks a question back. Then we get down to talking about her husband, in which then Jesus reveals what kind of woman she was. She'd had many husbands, and the one she was with now was not her husband. Then something happens in verse 27, and this is where I want us to begin to read in John chapter 4, verse 27. The disciples finally show back up, and they were surprised to find Jesus talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, let's just say that we know of such a woman here in this area. And if you knew her reputation, because this was a small town, everybody knew what she did. And you didn't want to talk about it as a man because perhaps you knew her personally as well. So to hear her get excited about somebody who told her everything she ever did, people were like, wow, that must have taken a while. I mean, you get it? She, of poor reputation, goes back and says, Come see a man. So she's inviting people to go back and hear from Jesus who has just told her everything she had ever done. And she's excited about it. So clearly, this creates an intrigue, if you will, to why would she want us to come hear from a guy that just told her and exposed everything she has done? knowing what we know about her. The intrigue is certainly there. But then you also have to think, but why is she excited about it? And when she drops the idea, could this be the Messiah? Now I must go check it out. So people began to go out to Jesus to hear from him. And Jesus speaks to them and they receive it. Now, verse 39, this is where I want us to read again. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Then they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So, our story of encountering Jesus can spark a salvific journey for others. Do you understand that? Your story, my story, when observed and heard, can spark a salvific journey for others. This woman simply was completely transformed by the encounter she had with Jesus. That she went back, that she forgot who she was, and simply says, 
come hear a man that told me everything I ever did. She comes out of the darkness into the light and confesses to her status before God. People then come to Jesus to hear from him. And then they, because of her testimony, they come. And then because of Jesus, they give their lives to him. And it changed an entire community. Now, the couple things are at play here. You don't get the sense that this woman was a great speaker. That she had her theology all accurate and in order. All she had was a simple story is, come meet a man that exposed who I am and is clearly changing me. If she can do that and simply be a messenger to come hear from Jesus and see her entire town come to him, could not God do the same through you and I? I think two things were at play. People heard from her, but they also could tell something was different. So they were drawn in. The intrigue caused them to go on a journey to go hear from Jesus directly. So I want to tie this to Jesus says, this is how things like this happen. So Matthew chapter 5, if you could turn over there. So it's a little bit to the left in your Bibles. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Jesus is describing kind of this journey of how you and I can be used by God to be a conduit for somebody coming to Jesus and experiencing salvation. So verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt and light. Now, we can pretty simply deduct the difference between the two is to, as to how somebody's life can be used in a salty kind of way. And I'm not talking about the negative use of that term, but in a way of being drawn in. When you taste of salt, you want more of it. Versus also when light comes, light exposes and reveals something. So what Jesus is saying here is that you are the salt of the earth. Something that when somebody comes into contact with you, somebody's interacting with you, something about the essence of who you are causes them to want to know more. That's what salt does. But it requires interaction. It requires some exposure. But light, being the light of the world, it's just you living out Jesus and people that come near enough to you to take notice you have no idea who's watching. You just know that God's changed you and others are seeing that change in you. I believe that Jesus is drawing specifically from the, what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 8. And you'll recognize this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, if you taste of somebody who's experienced the gospel in their life, the good news of Jesus where they're transforming them. If you taste of that, you can't have just one little bite. You want more of it. And then if you see the transformation and you can watch it from afar, it causes you to want to kind of begin to go on a journey to figure out what it is that just got revealed to you. And what the psalmist says is that when you taste and see you will know that the Lord is good. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, you know, if you live your life so well among the pagans, they will, even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will begin to glorify your God that's in heaven. Because they're going to look at your life and they want to accuse you of doing wrong, but they can't 
really give a, a, an accusation that sticks. They see that there's something different, and they have to acknowledge, I guess their God must be real. Because the pagan's an absolute rejecter of the idea of God. But yet, Peter says, even the pagans will glorify your God if they see your life live so well. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So, having said that, what I would, if I was to summarize what I see Jesus saying here in Matthew 5 and combining it with what I see in the story of the woman at the well, you can see that living out your relationship with Jesus in confidence and with no hesitation, it can become like salt that creates the desire to seek Jesus or the light that reveals who he is. You see, if you just live it out, if you yourself have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you let that begin to permeate the entirety of your life, then others, as they come into contact with you, interact with you, will begin to taste of him as well. And then others that don't want to get near you will be looking from afar and seeing, yeah, there's something about that life that is different. I, I guess what they're, it's real for them, right? It's real for them. Maybe not for me, but it's real for them. Because they have no other way to explain it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I believe that literally the lives that you and I live become the front porch or the screen door to the house of God. People won't get on that porch unless they have an encounter that says, I see something at play here that I want. Or they experience. They run into you and they get more interaction with you and they experience some of it and they're like, whatever's in you, I need to have. I believe it's that kind of work that causes people to go on a journey to want the same thing you have. St. Francis of Assisi has been attributed to saying this following statement that I, I think has a lot of truth to it and maybe something questionable. And it says this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You may have heard that phrase before. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, we don't know for sure if he ever said that, but let's assume he did for a moment. What I believe he's commenting on is that we're to be preaching the gospel at all times. Our lives should be an aroma of Christ that declares and shows a light. Like what Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they can see what's going on in you and begin to glorify your Father in heaven. So yes, we preach the gospel at all times by how we live. But then his comment, and if necessary, use words. All of a sudden I start to cringe a little bit. Because my rhetorical question to you is, is it necessary to use words for somebody to come into a relationship with Jesus? And I'm going to answer it for you. And the answer is this. Words are necessary for someone to come to a saving faith. Words are necessary to come to a saving faith. So what would be better said is to preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words because it's going to be necessary to use words. We can't just be salt and light by the way we live for somebody to be able to be intrigued and be able to get there. No, at some point, you have to use words. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 10. Because this statement is not my own. This is not my own uh, value system. It's literally biblical to state that words are necessary for saving faith. So we're going to begin in verse 9. And for those that might know the book of Romans would know that verses 9 and 10 are the most simple way to describe how one becomes saved. How somebody comes into a relationship with Jesus where he then saves them from the consequences of their sins. It's very much given right here in these two verses. So I'll begin there. It says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay, you hearing that? If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So there's an inner working and an outer working. Somebody who will be saved is somebody that can say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. And when they're saying that, what they're saying is, Lord means to say, they are the leader of my life. And I submit to their authority. So we confess with our mouths that Jesus is my leader and the Lord and the controller of my life. And I yield to him. And then I believe in my heart that the work he did on the cross, dying as a sinless man, taking on the sins of the world, then creates the opportunity for me to come into relationship with God. And so then I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, therefore giving us life. And it says, you will be saved. But now we need to keep going. Verse 11, it says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Amen? Amen. All of us can be saved through the same work of Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then he restates 9 and 10 by saying, So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then here's where the Apostle Paul's audience is similar to my audience today. There is a national rationalization and justification to say that I will just live it out and then let people figure it out. I think that was a common concern then as it is now that people will live it out but they don't want to speak it out. They want people to just figure it out on their own for whatever reason. But Paul says this and it must cut to our hearts when he says in verse 14, he says, okay, if everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Well, they have to believe, right? But how can they believe in in the one of whom they have never heard? So there has to be a hearing. And then how can they hear unless someone preaches to them or tells them? And how can anyone tell them or preach to them unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul is saying here to us, there is no way you can give your life to Jesus unless you hear. You have to hear the gospel. You have to hear the good news. And in order for them to hear it, somebody has to go and tell them. And if they're then, if that's true, then that person that's going and tell them needs to be sent by somebody. And then when that actually happens, when somebody tells the good news, God makes a declaration of the person who tells the good news. He says, your feet have become beautiful. Now think about this for a moment. What do your feet look like? Thank goodness we're in a culture where we wear shoes and socks. Because not all of our feet are as beautiful. Now, my feet look all right. But your feet, maybe not so much. But I would never call my feet beautiful. I don't care what I think about my feet. I would never call them beautiful. Some of you right now cannot stand feet, and you're cringing right now in your seat. I understand. But God says, if you actually go and tell somebody about him, And his son, Jesus, he has declared your feet beautiful. He has declared you, your feet beautiful. So, with that being said, we best proclaim Jesus. If being like Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, means we love God so much that our whole being is in line with what he's doing, then we're going to love people and we're going to also live out truth. And when all those things are going on inside of us, you are going to truly adopt what he has said, which is, and we tell why we do what we're doing. 
Peter goes on in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, when you live your life among the pagans, again, so good that they begin to say, oh, your God must be real. But at some point, they're going to be so intrigued, they're going to ask you a question. And he tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, we've got to be prepared to give an answer. But here is where the insecurity lies. Many of us here, it's like, again, I feel confident in what Jesus has done. I trust in what Jesus has done for me. I can even declare him as the son of God. I can declare him as Lord. I can declare him as truly being risen from the grave. I can sing at Easter. But when, as soon as we start talking about, so tell somebody about it, all of a sudden, all confidence goes out the window. Why is that so? Why do we get that place where all of a sudden the confidence leaves us? Jesus says this, that when he's going to give us the Holy Spirit, in fact, he says in Luke chapter 10 and 12, he talks about this understanding that if you go out into the world and you get arrested for doing the proclamation of Jesus, and you go before councils who are filled with religious leaders who know the text, and they're going to try to trap you and, and try to get you to say wrong things, Jesus tells you, don't worry about what you'll say. Because the Holy Spirit I'm giving you will tell you exactly what you need to say. The story of the church and its growth is filled with stories of unlikely messengers speaking the gospel. I mean, even in our storylines, there are children who know no better than to fear or, to, or that there's courage that needs to be involved. They just speak it. Oh, to have a childlike faith. I remember being really young, somewhere in that 8 to 10 years of age, and getting in my grandfather's lap who did not know Jesus, and, and just having tears in my eyes, and I remember him asking, so what's wrong, Tony? He said, Grandpa, you're going to hell. <laughs> and I'm sure that my grandfather was like, because my father had given his life to Christ and had shared the gospel multiple times with his father, my grandfather. And I'm sure he's rolling his eyes like, this is getting out of hand. But not too long later, just a few years later, my grandfather gave his life to Christ. I don't know. I have no idea what along the way stuck. What moved him from death to life. I don't know. And I also don't know if I was speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit age eight or nine. What I do know is that words were spoken to him over time, and at some point he responded to the gospel. Some of us plant and sow seeds over and over and over again, and we're wondering when it will happen. For my, my dad will tell you that it took 17 years of sharing the gospel with my grandparents before they came to Christ. 17 years, sowing the seeds, speaking. So the most important thing I can tell you today is the best way we can proclaim Jesus is by the testimony of our mouths and by how we live. It's both. It's not just by words. It's also by how we live. Because our words then match up with our life. And it's not just by life. It's also with our words. The worst story I can think of is that somebody that's in my relational world, my oikos, if I was to, to have been with them for a long period of time and they were to tell me, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know anything about him. That would be an, an indictment upon me. That they had a relationship with me, but they never knew the gospel. So people, if you're a child of God here in this room, God has given you his Holy Spirit. And wherever your insecurities lie, his spirit is powerful enough to make the most inadequate in this room be an effective communicator for the gospel. And yes, our lives do beg the question, why is it you do the things you do? But then our words help them understand why.
Some of you here have known Jesus for a long time. In fact, I would like in this moment to get a response out of you. If you have known Jesus, he is as your personal Lord and Savior for more than 50 years, would you stand up right now? To you, dear saints, share Jesus. As our bodies get older, they don't look quite so pleasant anymore. But Jesus can still say about your feet, how beautiful are your feet when you bring good news. And the younger generations in this room needs to see Jesus in you. They need the testimony of years to say, it's been worth it and I have no regrets. They need to be able to see beyond the current context that says, uh, religion is a thing of the past. The word of God is archaic. It's not relevant anymore. They need to hear from you. No, it has been the rock by which I can stand. That gospel can be so powerful through you. How many of you here in this room would join them? Stay standing. How many of you would join them in standing right now and say, I've come to Christ in the last five years? Would anybody say that? I've only come to Christ in the last five years. You too can inspire those who are standing ahead of you. Reinvigorating that which had happened to them 50 years ago that's happened to you in the last five years. God can use you. In the very day of salvation for this woman in John 4, her entire community comes to Jesus. In two days, God can do a work through us. Would you all stand, please? And I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you in this moment that God would use the testimony of his work done in you to bring a movement to those around you. So, Father, I just know that in the power of Jesus' name, much can be accomplished. I know that by the spirit that is in them, that there is nothing that can come against that spirit but what that spirit would have authority over. And so, Lord, I just pray in the power of Jesus' name that you would use the story of what you've done in our lives to open doors for conversations for the gospel so that our communities, Lidditz, Mannheim, Ephrata, Schaeferstown, Myerstown, Mannheim Township, Lancaster City, that we can say Jesus is moving here among us and people are coming to you. So God, help us to speak with confidence that name. I pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus from the mountains, Jesus in the streets, Jesus in the darkness over every enemy, Jesus for my family, I speak the holy name, Jesus. that he is Lord. But the most important thing I can say about that statement is that that happens in a person's life before they die. Because when they say it after they die, if that was the first time, it's too late. We need to say that and call out upon him while we have life and breath in our lungs. Paul says this to the church of Colossae when it says, to them... God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all the wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. 
You see this mystery that Christ is in you by the power of his Holy Spirit is truly a treasured message that needs to be heard and received. And we're the messengers of that. And so if you are pre having known who Jesus is and bending the knee and calling him your Lord, I would encourage you to give your life to him today. Call upon him. Declare him as your Lord. Acknowledge that he has died and risen again and that his, your sins have been covered by him. We would also love to pray with you about whatever might be upon your heart. We'll have people in the encounter room that would be glad to do that and pray with you. I'll also be up front. Don't leave this room without having bent the knee towards Jesus and to calling him Lord. You have heard it spoken, and there's testimonies of many that stood today that tells you it's true. So receive that. And for the rest of us that know Jesus, let the lack of courage, let the lack of confidence, maybe any fear or concern for how it might be received, would you set that aside and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit in you? to speak who Jesus is and what he's done for you. People's lives depend on it. So in the powerful name of Jesus, I pray the blessing over you as ambassadors of this good news. Amen. You're dismissed.